2: or wherever you get your podcasts. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio.
3: Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. I am Ben. I am joined uh, with our super producer, Casey Pegram. Our guest producers, Andrew Howard and Max Williams. I'm pointing at them, but they're not in the room. I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be a visual thinker. Uh, you know, you guys... You guys know me by now. If you don't know me by well, whatever. Uh my rider died, Noel, as I said previously, is off on some adventures. So I've been immensely fortunate to gather some guest host. Uh, you previously heard, my pal uh Matt Frederick, on a weird history of pointy shoes that was ruined by the Quister, spoiler alert. Uh, but today we're trying something is something different. This is a fantastic journey. I think it's an important one to know about that doesn't get as much attention in the modern day as it should. It is a topic that I was not going to explore on my own. I reached out for some help from some of the experts and fellow ridiculous historians. I am proud to announce, you know her, You love her. Today, we are joined by the one and only Eves Jeffcoat. Eves, the crowd goes wild.
4: (sighs) (laughs) Wow, what an introduction. Uh, I love that. Yes, I am here. And I'm honestly very happy to be here because this topic is something I've honestly been dying to talk about (laughs) rather than just like being in my own little silo with it because it's something that I like have a personal connection to that I knew nothing about before I realized that I had a, a small personal connection to. Um, which we'll get into in a second, I imagine.
3: Yeah. You know, Eves, we're always looking for excuses to work on stuff together. You are a well-known podcaster. You're an executive producer now. You also write frequently for The Bitter Southerner, which is a fantastic literary magazine down here in the Southeast. And when we were talking off air, we were saying, well, you know, we're hanging out. What kind of story do we want to explore together? Uh, peek behind the curtain, folks. Eves always has the best topics. So, <laughs> well, so usually you. You, it's true. Usually when we're talking about collaborating on something, I, um, and Eves, I hope you don't think I'm lazy for doing this. I just defer to you and I'm like, I well, what should we? <laughs> what, what, what are, what's on your mind? And you came with this idea, which again, as we said, it's something that, I and, and probably many other people maybe know a little bit about, like the first paragraph of Wikipedia level or the headline mm-hmm. level. But what, what is our story today and, and what, what inspired you to look into it?
4: Well, first off, I don't. Want, I want to say that that is not lazy of you because I mean I think we're most well attuned to talking about the things we actually care about. So I feel like it's better for everybody for me to come with something that I'm actually interested in. So, <laughs> gonna take that. I'm gonna roll it back, roll that stuff, self-deprecation back for you, and gonna say that it's not lazy. Um, but <laughs> we're gonna be talking about turpentine today. And my connection to it, okay, I feel like I worked it up a bit by saying I have a personal connection. It's not that deep. It's just that my mom told me one day that my grandmother, who's now passed, but she used to give my mom turpentine, like to ingest it. And I was asking my mother a little bit more about it. And she said... Oh, well, I think it was, you know, she would give it to me when I felt sick or down or or ill in some way. And I really don't know much. I don't know much more about how and why my grandmother gave my mom turpentine. But I was like, hmm, turpentine? I mean, <laughs> I think we all have those those family stories where we hear about the folk remedies and the specific to family remedies. And we know that herbal medicine was big for a lot of people today still, But specifically within Black families, herbal medicine is something that's pretty important because it's like what we had access to and the things and because of government distrust and so many other things Mm -hmm. um, in that vein. But that's where I got into it. So I was like, there has to be more to this story because there's always more to the story. And I was just curious. And to be quite frank, I was kind of ashamed that I didn't know more about the history of turpentine in the South because I'm from the South. I was born in South Carolina, raised in Georgia, so I'm a very Southern girl. And I was like, I should know more about this history, but who? I, I'm being hard on myself, of course, because there's so much that we don't know in this world. And whenever we get an opportunity to learn more about it, then, then we do, we do that.
3: That is inspirational, Eves. And I would agree. I think you are being a little hard on yourself because I can tell you this, <laughs> I like many people in the audience today, after our initial conversation i thought yeah i remember this and then uh, I, I was excited about our story today and then it occurred to me i was like what is turpentine <laughs> you know like i yeah. <laughs> like i've heard of it and i remember it being referenced in things and i mm-hmm. know it has a number of different industrial uses but you're absolutely right i love the point you're bringing up to um a lot of people don't acknowledge that in historically oppressed and disenfranchised communities, there's a synthesis or almost a syncretism of known established natural remedies for things meeting Mm -hmm. with institutional racism, like the, Mm -hmm. uh, the systemic discrimination against Black populations that occurs in the medical community today even. So it's funny because... I didn't know that your personal experience was a folk remedy. It's not, it's not an uncommon one back in the day. And I just, so you don't feel alone in the grandmothers and folk remedies things. <laughs> I'll confess to you, my grandmother, one of my grandmothers, I, I, uh, my family hails from Appalachia. So okay. I, I'm Southern by root as well. Cool. One of my grandmothers who was a teetotaler kept whiskey around in the house as a medicinal thing <laughs> and one uh more than once I had an earache and she put mm-hmm. whiskey in my ear
4: wow <laughs> how do you think that how do you think that affected you do you think that there are any side effects you can point to later in life now
3: <laughs> well i'm probably going to our uh number 1 bar and chicken wing spot the local <laughs> after this i'll probably drink whiskey but i'll i'll try it with my mouth this time
4: <laughs> that's funny um no but also to be clear i'm not denigrating folk remedies at all like right, of yeah. course there's a lot of breadth of folk remedies and some of them work for some things some of mm. them don't work for others some of them are probably things you shouldn't do period but there is validity to a lot of them, legitimacy. And I am a big proponent of making sure that we honor that kind of secondary knowledge that we have, you know, and also remember to think about who studied, who was doing the studying when it comes to things that are actually verified by, you know, longitudinal studies and mainstream, you know, widely accepted science. It's like, who was studied in those studies and, and how are they being legitimized? And so I think there's just a lot of depth when it comes to things like giving your children turpentine and whiskey. And it's not to say that that the people who were doing these things were ignorant. They weren't stupid. They weren't even misguided necessarily. It's just, you know, a matter of what worked for them and what they had access to and what they had knowledge of. So I think that's the case in turpentine. And I'm not completely clear on this in my specific family history, but I just felt, I was like, well, turpentine was huge in the South. There must be some sort of convenience element here where it was like, that's what my grandmother gave my mother because it was so prevalent. You know, people always heard about it. People heard about the one thing that came up when it to its medicinal use was it having purgative qualities, which is like, that's something that, you know, you often need to do is purge when you're sick. So, yeah, it's just, it was there. And so that's something that I wonder about. And it kind of let me deeper into this hole of just wondering how it moved through the South and what its effect was and and how that came to be. So... Yeah, it has plenty of function, too, like outside of medicinal remedies.
3: Mm-hmm. And and also, um, from what I understand, it's not just ingested orally for medicinal purposes, right? It's also it's almost like a Vicks Vapor Rub sometimes. Yes. Right?
4: Yes. So when I was taking notes on it, when I was reading about all the things it's been used for, I was like, it's kind of like an all like all purposes baking soda. Um, Because I use baking soda for everything in my house. I'm like, oh my God, I love baking soda and vinegar. Like, give it to me. Um, Mm -hmm. But it kind of seems like people treated turpentine in that way. Um, So some of the things that it's been used in is paint thinner, varnishes, furniture wax, lamp oils. The list really goes on and on when it comes to the person. It's been used externally and internally for things like hemorrhages, epilepsy, yellow fever, tapeworm, rheumatism. (laughs) <laughs> Respiratory disease, so so wow. many different things. Also, it's been described as having been used rectally for people with worms, hemorrhages, and severe gas. So it wasn't it wasn't just topical and ingested through the mouth as well. So there was a lot of variation in how it was taken into the body. So yeah, household items, you know, and in, in, in industrial processes and in medicinal practices, it's just kind of like an all-encompassing thing. And when I was looking it up, ingesting turpentine was in the news a few years ago because Tiffany Haddish brought it up saying, I put it on sugar cubes or something and I take it, it's great. I use it for the cold, colds. I use it for all these things. And it was a rash of like, you know, cautionary articles that came up after that saying, don't do it, you know, turpentine or turpentine <laughs> can be like, you know, terrible for you. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, particularly in large doses. It has, side effects in smaller doses as well, though. So, yeah, it can, you know, lead to things like bleeding in the lungs, kidney damage, and I don't think death is that common, but of course anything not in moderation, you know, can, can be fatal, and that's mm-hmm. the case with turpentine.
3: So when you and I were were looking into the history of this substance, you know, just to be clear, when for anyone wondering what is turpentine, it's a form of distilled resin, right, mm-hmm. from tree sap. Yes.
4: Yes, it is. So there's a whole process um, that we can get into when it comes to actually describing how turpentine is extracted from trees, but it comes from pine trees. And the work can be pretty laborious, but it does take skill to do it. Like there's specialized knowledge that you kind of need to have to be able to work in it as are so many things, you know. You do something for a long time, and you're immersed in it. Then you have this knowledge that seems very easy to the people who are doing it for so long. But outside of it, it's it's not. That's not necessarily the case. So you extract it from trees. They have different parts of the process called boxing, where you cut a hole in the tree, and then cornering. And then the sap kind of bleeds, or not sap, excuse me, the the gum bleeds from the tree and it's collected in those boxes. And then the workers would go and collect that from the trees in buckets. And then they would take the buckets and they would dump those into barrels. And then it would be transported off and turned into other things from there. So the tree is an amazing resource (laughs) for so Mm -hmm. many things, you know, one small, this thing that we're really you know exploiting the tree for turns into so many other things that have so many uses for us in our cushy existences
3: (laughs) (laughs) yes yes so i i love that you're talking about the process of finding collecting distilling creating turpentine because our story today is not just i want to be candid this is a story that like i knew almost nothing about. Mm -hmm. I knew that turpentine was made in the South. Like I knew the American South is one of the places that would create turpentine. But other than that, I was tabula rasa. I had no, I had no idea that there is such a long and deep story that, you know, you could argue has ripple effects here in the modern day in 2021, especially in our neck of the global woods. Mm-hmm. So what you know, when we say when we say this story, I feel like I'm beating I'm beating around the pine <laughs> yeah. tree here. So we know turpentine has been produced in the American South. And it's like our story is a little bit more about that than it is about right. turpentine the substance. So do you want to kick us off here, Eves? Where where are we traveling yeah. to back in time?
4: Okay, so picture this. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Oh, please, that was awesome. (laughs) 100% though, the history is very long and very rich. Long, uh, relatively, obviously, because the U.S. is you know, the history of the U.S. as a quote-unquote nation is pretty short, and the history of the South, you know, goes back only a certain amount of time. But within that time span, since we started, be- since we became a nation since the American Revolution, the whole history of turpentine in the U.S. South goes back to before then, so to the 1700s. And when up to today, it still has effects. So there's a whole history, which we don't need to get into, of how turpentine was produced here it was often very low quality but we when we were a colonies you know we would we had a whole setup we were shipping back to europe because their whole situation over there wasn't the best where they were getting their supply from and so they said we have colonies you know why don't we just get them to do it look at all these forests that are there so that's kind of where the industry started and then it picked up a lot from there it peaked in the later 1800s to so the early 1900s. But that, like I said, the history spanned from like the 1700s on up to the 1960s and 70s. And then the remnants of those things are still in place today when it comes to what the population looks like and what the land looks like. And I think the story, the, the larger story here in that, what you know, I think you were trying to get at is that there is so much wrapped up in, in it in the history of turpentine in the U.S. South because it was related to race. The story was related to economics. The the story was related to the social and cultural history of the region and of the land itself. You know, you have to imagine, I mean, if if we're telling a story about a natural resource in the South, that those things will be wrapped up into it. So I think when we first started talking about this, people are probably like, yeah, I could imagine. There's probably gonna there's probably gonna be some sort of history of all those things in there because that's just what the era and the region lends itself to, and then that is the case. Um, so just to kind of set up the definition in in the beginning here, is that there were naval stores, is what they called them, and they called them naval stores. And, you know, that's related to the history of the turpentine camps. Um, but they call them naval stores because they were products that were used in shipbuilding. And they came from the longleaf and slash pine trees. Those were the best trees that they could work from. And really, the longleaf was the the preferred tree that people would like to use for these naval stores. But th- the term naval kind of just did relate to that industry, even though the products were used in different industries because it was used so much in ship construction and maintenance. And that was kind of the focus of where those supplies were being sent at the time. And that included tar, raw turpentine, and then their derivatives, which is spirits of turpentine, and then rosin and Pitch.
3: This does tie into, um, as you said, some complex sociocultural things that have to be Addressed and should be given, I think, more space and conversation. So when we're looking at, like as as you said, Eves, we're 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 picturing ourselves as England back in the day for a world conquering empire. They definitely needed a lot of foreign resources. So a lot of the stuff that England was doing as an empire was based on resource extraction was based on being able to you know uh control colonial populations to bring to England the stuff that they didn't have on their archipelago. So if we imagine the time period we're describing and we're looking at the south in particular then we see a huge agricultural industry and mm-hmm. it's often mono agricultural, right? We've got some like plantation owners who are focusing entirely on using forced labor to grow, like, a single crop, you Mm -hmm. know, Uh, whether that is cotton, whether that is, like, in the Caribbean, it might be sugarcane, stuff like that. And several of these plantation owners, from what I understand, around the time there were improvements in the distillation process in the 1830s, Several of those folks started looking at, or those institutions started looking at the demand for what was known as naval stores and thinking, you know, pardon my French, holy pine trees are everywhere. (laughs) Yes, absolutely.
4: Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com.
2: Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company SI and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.
5: Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver.
0: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Yeah, so pine trees are everywhere. If you're not familiar with the U.S. South, there's a bunch of pine forests in the coastal plain of what were the southern colonies are, the U.S. South states now. And there was a lot of longleaf pine. As I said, that was a preferred species. So it stretched through the forests in Virginia, through North and South Carolina, through the Florida panhandle and the Northern Peninsula of Florida, and through Southern Alabama and Mississippi and parts of Louisiana and Texas. So this whole kind of, if you just draw that backwards L along the coast of the Eastern and Southern United States... That's where a lot of the longleaf pine was, and a lot of those forests were great for just exploiting for the purposes of naval stores. And as you said, well, okay, let me let me first say this is an aside, but honestly, one thing that I liked about digging into this is that I despise pine trees. Uh, so, yeah. I, so like as you said, we have a lot, and there are a lot in my backyard. And when Mm. I moved to this place, I had, like, five of them cut down. I was just like, oh, I can't stand (laughs) them! You know, because they were, um, this sounds very privileged, and it is, but, like, you know, they're very tall, and so they're hazards as well. But they Mm. just shed so much. So one aside of, like, digging into this was me really gaining a greater appreciation for the pine. But that just leads into me saying, we have a lot of them here. And the naval stores industry first developed on a large scale in North Carolina, the abundance of naval stores that were produced in the state is the thing that gave it its nickname, the Tar Heel State. Um, And it refers to the workers who were covered in tar and pitch. So, yes, there was a lot of overlap between... Well, slaves were involved in the the naval stores industry highly, Mm. highly heavily before the Civil War. They made up most of the workforce. But, yes, plantation owners also play a big role in it. So they controlled a large portion of the naval stores industry in the South, a significant percentage of the manufacturers owned more enslaved people than the average slave owner did. And in a book called Tapping the Pines by Robert Outland III, he says that 33% of all manufacturers owned more enslaved people than average slave owners, and many owned two to three times as many. So they were very intertwined. And in South Carolina and in North Carolina especially, conditions were perfect for profiting from tar making because in North Carolina, there weren't many other export commodities that could compete with the naval stores. And lumber wasn't as profitable there. And naval stores could also, there were this thing that could be worked throughout the year. So conditions were just perfect in North Carolina for that being a successful production space for them. And it just, you know, blew up in the South from there. It kind of moved... South and West as they, like the destruction, you know, imagine like mm-hmm. just a, a path of destruction from North Carolina and down when it came to the pine forests, because once they ran out, they went to the next place. And it's like, we got to make more money. We got to, we got to continue this industry. So we're just gonna, you know, do it where mm-hmm. we can.
3: Just keep, keep moving. So it's like Absolutely. a economically driven natural disaster. Almost.
4: <laughs> yes. I mean, yes. And it's, and it has still, you know, shows its effects today. There were things that happened, like forests that didn't grow back. And towards the end of it, they had to use younger pines, which weren't as great for the industry and and so many things like that. But that is some of the background of the, like, you know, the way that it started and it, and it mm-hmm. continued to move throughout the
3: South. One thing I did want to go back to, because I, I, I want you to know, I I'm a a big nature lover, yeah. but I I wanted to from that perspective, I wanted to reassure you. I <laughs> there's nothing wrong with hating pine trees.
4: Okay, geez. thank
1: you. There's
3: not one. It just needs to be said aloud. Okay. Like especially the really tall ones. Yes. <laughs> if you've ever if you've ever been in the South or lived near a pine forest and seen those things in a storm or in inclement weather, it's not cool. Yeah, they wave everywhere. They're very bendy, and they also have a really, instead of a really deep root system that's more vertical, they have a really shallow, a comparatively shallow root system that goes across. So you can see, so if you hit the wrong kind of storm, man... Down here, you can see a pine tree just move from vertical to horizontal pretty quickly, <laughs> take a little bit of dirt with it and just say, "Hey, I'm glad my car wasn't there." <laughs> so I think you're I think you're doing all to say I, I think you're spot on." and <laughs> then, and the sap, the sap mm-hmm. or the gum or whatever you call it it's everywhere. It's yes, everywhere.
4: it's everywhere. The needles are insane. And yeah, so I, too, am a nature lover, but I like to respect them from a distance. You know, I'm kind of (laughs) like half nature. I'm still half city girl because I grew up in the Atlanta area. So it's like in my backyard. I'm cool, but I love hiking. I love like being entrenched in the forest. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, y'all are great there. But here, you know, we can (laughs) we can love each other at a distance.
3: (laughs) That's how I feel. Yeah, I'd like it. Yeah, that's that's how I prefer possums, for instance. Also (laughs) very common here. I'm like, you know, it's awesome that you're alive. Over there, bro. (laughs) It's awesome. Awesome. So what we're seeing is a pattern that has occurred with multiple other industries that occurs today with things like the palm oil industry, right? Which is going through huge swaths of wilderness. And back in the period of time in the area of the world that you're describing, we see, I love that you describe it as that backwards L, because that's really, that really is how it how the pattern seems to expand. This occurs concurrently with the rise of what we would call turpentine labor camps, like Mm -hmm. turpentine camps, uh, meaning that these are populations of people entirely dedicated to the turpentine naval stores industry, like it's not like something where the workers live at a camp seasonally, because as you said, this is a year-round business. People and their families are living at a main camp until the resource is exhausted. Is that correct?
4: Yes, that is correct. And then once those resources exhausted, they would just kind of move on to the next place. And there were, it was a little bit a little bit different before the Civil War and then after the Civil War because of emancipation specifically. But... It wasn't that different. Um, there were things that changed, like technology and the way production happened. But a lot of, as we know, within in general, you know, we know about the the direct line from slavery to mass incarceration. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of the practices that were done under enslavement still happened after emancipation, and that was the case in the turpentine industry. So just to kind of describe the way it was for a second. And as you said, the turpentine camps, which were these camps that were specifically dedicated to extracting the gum from the trees. And so they weren't really involved in the distillation process. They would send those, that raw turpentine away for other people to deal with the also, you know, in in their own ways, terrible and (laughs) grueling and uh, laborious and hazardous often processes that came with working in the stills. But yes, so at the camps themselves, The conditions were pretty poor. And before the Civil War, there were a lot of enslaved people who were, um, I was going to say employed, but they were not employed because they were not paid. The enslaved people who worked the camps. And there were also more impoverished white people who worked there. And there were also immigrants, specifically Eastern European immigrants, that would work the camps. But it was largely enslaved people. And it was also very largely men versus women and children. Women and children really weren't super involved at the turpentine camps. But, you know, there were workers would go through this process. They would have long days of doing the boxing and doing the cornering and doing the scraping and all of the various processes that came along with the actual work of laboring with the trees. And housing was crude because it was meant to be temporary because you know like we talked about the production was just up and move after one place was exploited and there were a couple of different systems that were used when it came to life and working in the camps well in under slavery in general which was the task system and the gang system so in the gang system enslaved people were just kind of assigned work and they were expected to do it as a group and then under the task system which is what happened mostly at turpentine camps, individual enslaved people worked at and got an assigned job because you have to imagine, you know, we know what the forests are like today. They're dense, they're huge, <laughs> and they were even more so then and they were very isolated. And people worked in those in the turpentine camps under that task system, which gave them relative keyword relative, relative autonomy versus how it was under the gang system because they were assigned the tasks individually and they worked in in more of a spread out way than they would do so where they have more close communication under something like a gang system. So just imagine these people working the trees, using their tools, having their gallon buckets, being out here in a very socially isolated way and, you know, being subject, of course, to the things that happened under enslavement and other industries, like there was a gross, a very gross and calculated balance of punishment and reward for work. So punishments of physical pain would be the ones that made them increase their effort, but did not promote carefulness. And then when it came to rewards, they were the things that increased care rather, but reduced effort. So these same sort of mental manipulative things that happened under enslavement also happened in the turpentine camps. And then the overseers were called Woods Riders, which is honestly a great word. <laughs> it's <laughs> just not, like, I love that word itself, but everything else that it entails and that is underneath that word is not great. Mm-hmm. Um, but Woods Riders sounds like, I don't know, something out of a fantasy novel, I think is why. Yeah.
3: It's got <laughs> big like, Ursula, uh, yeah. Ursula Kayleigh Gun vibes. Like, it's like, I, I was thinking the same thing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. we're where it would not be out of place in Song of Ice and Fire and Game <laughs> exactly. of Thrones to be exactly. like, hold, the right. Woods Riders arrive at dawn. <laughs>
4: exactly, send the Woods Riders. <laughs> but yes. Um,
3: but these dudes, case, way less cool. Way yes, less cool way than way less idea.
4: cool. They were overseers. They rode through the forest on horses and they were, see to it that workers were doing their jobs. So yeah, um, I could go on and on about the conditions there, but I won't. But just as an example, of what they had to deal with and endure because of the labor that they were doing and the the way it was set up is that, for instance, there was, it was hard to get clean, running, drinking water in the forest, especially during dry spells. The stuff that was there was stagnant, obviously stuff you don't want to get, like dysentery and... and like other things that are bad that come from um, drinking bad water. I don't even know if dysentery is one of those things. Uh, Parasites, whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. So they didn't have clean running water. So sometimes they would use straws that they brought and then drink the water that was collected in turpentine boxes, the boxes that were in the trees, which as we know, can ingesting turpentine can lead to intestinal and abdominal issues. So it's likely that this caused some sickness in them, but was probably not fatal, but there were other hazardous conditions that came with working in the camps and later the stills, because fires and explosions were common in the stills because of the type of work that it was, because of what they were dealing with. And then there was the wildlife, like just what we you know, what we would all deal with in the forest, like the snakes and the ticks. Um, and then there was the heat and the humidity of the region And then there was the expansiveness of the forest, which meant that that people would get lost sometimes. There were stories of workers getting lost in the woods. And, you know, there there was a story of one guy who got lost and then he eventually died because he had hunger and thirst. So, yeah, um, not great conditions at all. And you're also being exploited in so many other ways beyond Mm -hmm. just the condition of the work itself.
3: Yeah. And this, so... I have to say, Eves, that the the description and and I don't know why, but especially the idea of someone being lost lends itself well to a horror story plot. You know? Yes, oh, you've got some. <laughs> I see some. I see some <laughs> steepled fingers.
4: I am like, this is like, this is something that I'm working on right now. Honestly, like I, I don't know about horrors per se, but mm. I think about this a lot because I also. Um, For people who don't know, but I know you know, Ben, I camp and I backpack. So I do spend a lot of time in the woods and like reckoning with fear that comes with being in the woods, especially as a person who is like largely sheltered because I live such a privileged life. You know, I have a house. Um, A lot of people don't have that. You know, I have uh, food to have on the table. And so it's just like it it throws you out of your element. And then you Mm -hmm. realize that this is just people's day to days still today and was in the past in so many different ways under so many different circumstances and so yes it's it's like a horror it's it's so it's horror it's terror because add the horror of the landscape to the terror of society <laughs> that was right. being you know you were being affected at um affected by at the time and it's just yeah brutal and horrifying so yes mm-hmm. that is a good way to describe it
3: yeah it's a, it's a, it's a harrowing Experience and you know, earlier you hit on something that I always love to bring up on the show. We're talking about just like folk remedies the idea you, you know, it's, it, it's tempting for people in 2021 or the modern era to look back at events of yesteryear and look kind of askance at them or down their noses at mm-hmm. the people involved, but the people who are alive in these times and in, in centuries and millennia past were no different from us. They were just right. as intelligent and they were just as fallible. And they were, work- like us, they were working with the information they have. So whenever I hear somebody say something like, oh, it's dumb that people didn't know, insert fact here, until blah, 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 blah. <laughs> right. But, but- <laughs> My question is what as uh, always, what dumb stuff are we doing right now, or what stuff are we doing that future historians will look back on as ridiculous? One of my nominees is neckties. I know this might not <laughs> affect you as much as it affects me, but uh, it's just why are we still doing this? Hmm. Why are we insisting upon this charade? But anyway, that has nothing to do with it. And I do know the history. I think it's like Serbian, okay. S- Bosnian soldiers.
4: Yeah. They're like, uh, what do you call the vestigial organs? Or, you know, like those things that <laughs> that That's... that we still have. We're like, I don't need those. Like, um, <laughs> So I, I I have to think about that a little bit longer because I feel like there are a lot of things that I balk at that I'm like, oh, this makes no sense. Like, why are we doing this this way? But I would definitely have to think about that. I know one thing, I don't think this is that, related but i always think about batteries i just feel like we're never moving fast enough with batteries <laughs> right and people are in the future going to be like why are you why are you still plugging things in with cords why are you why are we still here why does it take an hour for you you know i feel like maybe that's kind of related but i mm-hmm. had to think about that a little bit more and i'll come oh, back to you
3: that we live in a world of wires you and me especially right now uh just because yeah. we we have our home setups and I, I think about that too i'm like you know What's going to stand out in films that are set in this time period? It's going to be the wires. It's going to be the everything. (laughs) Like another thing, um, I, I don't want to guess too far off topic, but another example that I think you might enjoy or might terrify you next time you're driving is future historians are going to think, I'm not going to overuse this word, but are going to think it is ridiculous and cartoonish that we hopped in, these metal machines that can go over 80 miles an hour <laughs> and we're within like three feet of each other going yeah. at this speed. And it's all supposed to be fine because there's this honor system of painted lines on the road. And if you tried <laughs> to explain this to someone from the future, mm-hmm. their first question would be like, oh, that's crazy. How did it stop people from hitting each other? And your answer has to be, Human, it didn't. Yeah.
4: <laughs> Human error still existed. Yeah. <laughs> I I 100% feel you on that and also not to go too much on the tangent but yeah. it's something that I think about a lot because I think about how okay this is this is very deep into my my personal thought world. I'm but, here for it. Okay, but how how much we Feel, say, I feel like as human beings, as human humanity, like sometimes in society, we can a lot of times say that we don't trust people, but like every day we wake up and step outside of the house, we have to infinitely trust everybody <laughs> else that we come in contact with to not destroy us. Like the one thing that we can say we have in this life, I think is trust because otherwise we will be in a corner all day long. And even that like is, can be fuzzy. So, yeah. I actually think about, you know, I think about stuff like that a lot. Like we yes, we do have to rely on other people just doing the right thing and making a mistake just by their own fallibility, not not even on purpose.
0: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: And when we take, when we take this back to the idea of the, the turpentine camps, even after, you know, I, I feel like it's something that thankfully everybody can acknowledge now, even after The legal passage of emancipation, I would argue, even in areas of the South where people knew it was coming, you know, people who were like had the reins of society at the time, uh, when they knew it was coming, even before it had passed, they were already working assiduously to create laws Mm -hmm. that made the day to day situation still the same. And, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, It's heartbreaking that there were there were many, many communities, communities of people who were enslaved who did not learn about emancipation until years and years Mm -hmm. after the fact, uh, because that information was withheld from them. This happens like this. This is uh, something that has to be acknowledged when we're talking about this turpentine story, because as you said, Eves, so their emancipation happens right and mm-hmm. there are people in communities some some very large camps but like imagine you're a worker you work at a turpentine camp and you've been there for years as you said this is a very not to be too Liam Neeson about it but it's a very specific set of skills like if you're listening to this and you don't have experience Trying to do this, then you're going to have a bad time <laughs> yeah. for your first like year. Yeah,
4: and I don't know exactly. I, I don't know exactly how the apprenticeship worked because something that I was thinking about as I was reading how they did this it was like, what was the first once the the axe or you know the bucket was handed to you. Like, how did that look? How did you, you know, there, was, there had to be a first time that you did this thing, and it <laughs> required skill and practice, so I just wonder about that. But yes, um, it looked very different before and after the Civil War, and some of these practices continued, and some of those things that they did was debt peonage and mm-hmm. convict leasing. Well, I feel like there's a better way to say that, but the leasing of people who were con- considered convicts because they had been convicted of a crime. So that developed in the wake of emancipation and the practices and the people that were under them were subject to abuse. And the link here, and I always love when things are like they have some link to me, even if they're not great, it just makes history feel more real, you know. And Mm -hmm. for me, that was that the leasing of people who were convicted of crimes was very, very prevalent in Georgia, well, okay, it wasn't as prevalent as debt peonage was, but as far as the places in the South, they happened a lot in Georgia and Florida. So there were, of course, other industries that relied on peonage as well. There were past laws outlawing it in the 1860s, but it continued in practice as so many things do. Just because something is outlawed doesn't mean that that the processes and institutions just disappear all of a sudden. So it was kind of, you can think it of it as a continuation of enslavement. p is when laborers have to pay off a debt with work. And then sometimes those debts were paid off quickly. And more often than not, workers got stuck in that debt servitude when they couldn't repay the debt. And then the p happened when they couldn't leave the company, right. the, the job, because the producer was stopping them from doing that in some way.
3: I was waiting for this part, Eves, because this is this is coming up. You know, history may not always repeat, but it rhymes. I was thinking about company towns recently because there was some legislation being floated in Nevada to create what they called innovation zones. And they were gonna let tech companies fill the role of local government. Mm-hmm. And I I was I was one of the hopefully many people just Trash talking it on the <laughs> internet. Like, does no one remember the songs like 16 Tons? Yeah. Like, this is a bad look. And what you've described here beautifully is this this horrific system. It's like you're trapped in a Dave and Buster's or Chuck E. Cheese. But instead of playing games and getting paid in tokens, you do backbreaking labor and you still get paid in tokens. And that's not <laughs> real money. It's right. PC your script. We've talked about it in back. Uh, we've talked about it in back episodes. But imagine, like, so from what I understand, and this is some of the research you sent me. Is from what I understand, you would get a small living space. It would not be a very well constructed living space. You would get paid in whatever your fake currency was on a monthly basis, and you would, I think, in the early 1900s, the amount you got paid was based on how many trees you had worked. Yeah. But the only way you could buy things you needed, like the only way you could buy, maybe in some cases, the labor camps actually provided, you know, the turpentine related tools. But as far as like your clothing, as far as your food, other materials you would buy or other resources, you had no choice because that isolation you talked about, you had no choice other than the company store. It was not a Walmart. It wasn't like you couldn't take a bus somewhere. Um, And those company stores specifically had prices structured to encourage debt peonage uh, so that it was too, in the mind of those, what you call them, producers, the system is broken if people are able to get out of it, which is insidious.
4: It is honestly absurd. You know, it's like like the bucket with the hole in the bottom. It's like... It's just, it makes no sense, but it makes sense to them because the producers are the ones who profit (laughs) and that's all they're they're concerned about. And they don't care who gets exploited in the process and, you know, Mm -hmm. from from the smallest exploitation to, you know, fatality. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the debt would actually, you explained that perfectly, by the way, Ben, and the debt would start as soon as people were hired through things like advanced wages. So... Like I said earlier, some of those people were immigrants who were coming from places like New York, and so there was a whole explo- exploitative system there too in the way that they recruited these people and the, they set them up to go to the South. And they're like, these people coming from a strange, a stranger's land, you know, <laughs> coming to the United States, and they're like, I get this opportunity, you know, just put yourself in their place, and so you know they would be like, okay, you know, I'm going to go do this work. And it would be a total reversal <laughs> when you got there and realized how situation the situation actually was. So they would get these advanced wages. Mind you, these pe- these immigrants who were coming would have to pay things like the transportation would have to be paid for. Like So the, ah, the indebtedness gosh. started even there. Um, but for people who weren't immigrants who are already in the area and didn't necessarily have to go through that route, they would be set up with advanced wages as well. So they would use to get food from the commissary. So it would start off like that, and it would continue like that. So they would continue to use debt to keep these workers underneath their thumbs. So in the book I was talking about earlier, they kind of explained it as this line between freedom and, and unfreedom, you know, between freedom and enslavement. Because of the way it was set up, it was like, yeah, you're in debt, and maybe you're you're just constantly in debt. There were often times that the workers would owe the producers hundreds of dollars And so they would continue on their work in that debt. So it was just a rolling cycle. So the workers would get these tokens you would talk about to purchase supplies, and then the account was debited. And then at the end of the month, the wages were applied to the account. So, okay, you get the wages, and then maybe the wages were more than the debit. So maybe you got that difference, but you would get it in commissary script, you know, the fake money. But if it was even, you know, if there was no credit on your part, you would have to borrow again to pay for the next month's expenses. So they owed their employers, you know, it can be hundreds of dollars. And then what, what happened was, and this is where the P comes in, when they would try to leave, that's when the worker could be like, okay, maybe I'll let you leave, but your new employment has to pay me and they'll be fine. And then the other option was that they were like, uh, you need to stay. And if you leave, I'm gonna bring you back and then not do it, not follow up on that. And then they could follow up on that. It's like the third thing that would happen is that they would be like, you're not leaving and I'm going to physically keep you from leaving. And if you do leave, I'm going to forcibly bring you back. Just like, you know, back in the days of enslavement where they would send people off to bring enslaved people back. So it was, it was, it's just gross. Like, it's gross. (laughs) Like, there's not really another way to describe it. Yeah, it's just really disgusting. (laughs)
3: Agree. And we see, you know, again, we see that pattern where, you know, there are protective laws written at a federal, a state level Mm -hmm. uh, in different places. But these laws, as well intentioned as they may sound on paper, they don't seem to have a lot of heft or teeth when it comes to these historically disadvantaged communities, these rural areas where corruption is. It's a stereotype, but it's it's a true stereotype. Unfortunately, corruption is endemic. Like it mm-hmm. is, it would be weird for the local law enforcement not to just follow the lead of the richest guy in town. Yeah, right. As, yeah. because they they work together as fingers on a hand. They're exactly. part of this system. That uh, the Voltron's up, and then if someone from outside, like if someone from DC says, uh, you know, I like hey we wrote a law about this. Then mm-hmm. they'll just say, oh yeah, no, totally. That's absolutely <laughs> what we're doing. And then yeah. they'll just wait until that contingent is gone and they'll be back to their same unclean business. One thing that you set up perfectly is at the top of this episode is you, know, you said, we see the effects of this in the modern day. Could we maybe talk a little bit about how these naval stores and turpentine camps declined uh, and and like why why you, you probably won't know a bunch of people working at one today.
4: For sure. Okay, so I guess I kind of start at the place where you mentioned the laws that were happening. So there were, like you said, laws that were like, okay, I'm tr- going to try to keep you from doing this. As we move into the late 1800s and the early 1900s, There was more movement when it came to people challenging debt peonage, challenging the fact that this was forced labor, that that was the thing that was keeping the naval stores industry alive. And there were people who were speaking up about it and the treatment of people in these camps and the brutality that was happening because we didn't even get much into that. But it's like, you know, you know, just imagine there were terrible things that happened when it came to the types of torture and brutality. So all of these things were kind of boiling up, like the consciousness was happening there where it was okay, this is I'm, this is wrong and we should probably try to do something to stop it. And so that, that had a hand in the decline of the industry. A lot of the producers were investigated for violating the 13th Amendment. Forced labor was challenged, like I said, and so was the leasing of people who were convicted of crimes. And at the same time, the forests were being exploited and depleted. And that was the case. But there were also some people who were like, That's fine. You know, it's just a sign of civilization. This is what's gonna happen. This is what comes along with people developing the land and progressing and things like that. But at the same time as that, there were also technological advancements and production methods. And then there was greater research, and then there was more federal assistance in the industry. So, in that earlier kind of transition, a lot of the federal stuff benefited. The producers, but then there also came a point where it was like, okay, like this is declining. You're losing your labor force. You you losing your your force to labor. You know, a lot of mm-hmm. the black people who were in the area were like, there are all these other things that are happening that would be way better for me than working in this horrifying, low paying, exploitative debt servitude. You know, go on and on and on, go mm-hmm. on and so forth of a condition that you don't want to work and live in. Um, It's not really doing anything for you. So they found other alternatives in other industries, like timber. So there was a lot Mm -hmm. of competition as well for the people who could do this kind of work and were willing to do this kind of work and were forced to do, or not, I don't want to use the word forced because it wasn't forced labor, but this is the opportunities that were available to them. So the industry really struggled during the Great Depression, as many industries did. Um, And they did get some economic assistance from the government, Also of note, related to this, but a small aside, is that you can go on the Library of Congress's website and look up some of the posters and the audio that was related to the turpentine workers in the turpentine industry. There was actually a federal theater project put on by the Works Progress Administration. They had a play that was called Turpentine by a guy named J.A. Smith and Peter Morrell, or Morrell. Uh huh. Yeah, and on a, a poster for it, it says, A Tale of the Florida Pine Forest. And it was a three-act play in 10 scenes that depicted the mistreatment of Black workers in turpentine Southern labor camps. I know that because of a summary. I have not seen the play, <laughs> mm-hmm. of course. It was like the 1930s. But I, I'm very interested in what that play was like. Like, I just, when I saw that poster, I was like, oh, like what? I wish I could see that play. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, so... Just the point is that the effects of the industry were such that they were even part of these kind of representative and artistic conversations. Like, people were talking about the conditions of the camps and that consciousness was rising. And on more toward the decline in the 1930s and 40s, conditions were still bad. And the gum naval stores industry specifically suffered while the wood naval stores industries were kind of on the uprise, which was a different mode of processing the wood. They would break the stumps down and extract the resin from it in a different way. That was more focused on the, on the machinery. It didn't require as much human labor um, and specialization of labor to do that kind of work. That was done with the gum naval stores, the process that we talked about in extracting from the trees, very, very arduous, very intensive for the actual laborer. So on top of that, another hand in the decline was that the export market diminished. So there were exports that were coming out of the South and going to Europe. That market diminished. And so on top of all of, all of that mixed together is what led to the decline. And so, like I said, the production peaked in the late 1800s and the early 1900s and then continued to like 60s and 70s. but after that point, it was really, it was basically non-existent. Like you could find, you know, a couple here or there, but it wasn't worth it. <laughs> so there was nothing that could be done there. And so today you won't really see people who are working in gum naval stores and working the land in this kind of way. So that was very long, long explanation, but there were a well, lot we had, of things that led to it.
3: Yeah, we had a lot to wrap up, though. You you nailed it, uh, you, you nailed it in, a, in an amazingly concise way there because, you know, we've said it before on the show, but one thing history really teaches us is that nothing exists and nothing occurs in a vacuum, right? There is always, like, like you said at the top, there's always more to the story, and history really is a palimpsest. You know, we—it's a conversation. We move through it our a day-to-day basis. There's something interesting I, I learned that I. I wanted to use as a way to, to close our episode today, Eves. I had been, you know, like you, I'm a big fan of hiking. Give me a long weekend and just like a, a, a place to wander through, right? And mm-hmm. I'll, I'll try not to get lost uh, too bad. But I was in an area of Florida where I saw trees that had this very specific kind of vertical damage as if something had gone in and just like scooped a straight line through it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what it was because i just figured you know, i was in a place with creepy trees i just accepted that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because that's i, I was not a uh, super enterprise in that endeavor and i thought you know maybe some maybe it was the result of a natural events like maybe there had been a fire that the tree survived or maybe right. there had been years ago like a lightning strike or some something of that nature because it didn't look like an animal did it but now when i've been looking at these pictures of old growth forest uh, in florida in particular i'm starting to think maybe i had seen um maybe i'd seen a tree that had been used as a turpentine tree is it possible that you can still find those trees today
4: I think it is possible because they left very, very distinct marks on it. I've seen people talk about the V-shapes that they would see near the bottom of the tree that was the the marks that were left of that tree being used in the turpentine process. And yeah, so I think that you could still find those marks on the trees that are these leftover remnants of uh, a bygone time when they were used for that purpose.
3: So... That's that's a way like that's a, a physical, not just a physical, a living artifact of history, those trees in particular. Yeah.
4: I, w- I was gonna just say they're also also very living people, you know, who mm. who have a connection to it, even if they didn't work in the industry specifically, you know, like I said, it it more so faded out, you know, in the 60s and 70s, but there were people who lived through it that are still alive. And there are people who knew people who lived through it or were the family members of those who lived through it and are still alive. So if you do have the opportunity or know someone who did work in the industry, like talk to them because Mm -hmm. I'm sure they have a lot of stories. We didn't get into it today, but there are, like I said, there's audio. There are personal accounts and anecdotes of people who worked in it. So yes, there are living, tangible, physical remnants, when it comes to the land, um, when it comes to industry, and when it comes to the actual people who worked in it.
3: I love that you mentioned this because it's something we often forget, the importance of documenting uh, experiences, right? Of of taking the um, lived and oral knowledge of our elders. This is something that also... The federal government supported during the Great Depression to send people out to collect folkways, for instance, was one Mm -hmm. of the specific projects. But there were many, many more. Uh, And there's much more to this story. Please, if you'd like to learn more, check out Tapping the Pines, The Naval Stores Industry in the American South by Robert B. Outland, I believe. Yes, that is it. And- uh, Eve's at this point. In addition to thanking you again for coming on the show and and classing us up a little bit, I've gotta <laughs> I've, I've gotta ask. I, I know inquiring minds would would love to learn about your newest projects because it's been a it's been so long since you were you were last with us on air. What's what's the scoop? What are you working on?
4: Yeah. So I think the last time that. I was here, I was hosting this day in history class, and I was also hosting Unpopular, which are two shows that are also about history. So you can still go back and listen to those and check out a lot of other cool events and people in history that I am interested in. I think you might find some interest in as well, but now I am an executive producer. So I'm working on a lot of cool projects you can also today still catch me on Stuff Mom Never Told You, which I think a lot of y'all might be familiar with. I am talking about, I'm also talking about history on there, women in history specifically who had first in history. So you can check me out there. Also, EPAing some other cool projects that you can check out like Jill Scott Presents, J.L. The Podcast and others that I won't name. But if you want to know anything else about me, you can check me out on Instagram or on Twitter. I'm at Eve's Jeff Coat on Twitter and not apologizing on Instagram.
3: And what's awesome about this outro moment, fellow ridiculous historians, is that when Eve says she has upcoming projects uh, that she can't really talk about, that's 100% true. Like, it's so true that if me or Noel were to say hey what's what's the scoop then the the very like diplomatic answer we would probably get is oh i can't wait to tell you in a few months <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh you're a you're a mastermind eves i uh, thank you so much for coming on the show uh, and can't wait to hear more about these upcoming projects if you haven't heard Ill in particular, I do recommend that you check that out. Uh, also check out Eve's work and uh, Stuff Mom Never Told You, another fantastic show with some recurring guests of ours here on Ridiculous History. Eve's, I'm going to leave the, the last word to you. That's right. I'm doing the worst thing ever in improv. <sighs> I'm putting the spotlight on you. It can be anything you want. It can be, you know, when I say the last word, it could just be a word. There's just a word you like.
4: All right. um, So I'll do a little bit longer than the word, word. And I will say that I really appreciate you having me here again today. I just want to reiterate that because I have been wanting to talk to somebody about this. And I am glad that this has been an out for that. But as a huge added bonus, it's like a lot of other people get to listen to me spew things. And you got to like, we got to reflect that with each other. And then so many people will hopefully learn things. So I'm just very appreciative that I get to share this history and that I get to be the mouthpiece for that. And I had a lot of fun, too, which is always a plus. So thank you.
3: Always. Yeah, we're we're overdue uh, to go hang out post-pandemic. Folks, if the spirit moves you so, please head over to Ridiculous Historians. Let us know some of your favorite folk remedies of old. That's all for this week. We'll see you next time.